Okay. Well, let's go ahead and, and we'll get started. Tonight we are going to spend some time in reflection over the pastoral epistles as a group, First, uh, Second Timothy and Titus. We began this study back in April of 2006, and since it's been, I guess, approximately a year and a half since we started, I want to make sure that as we finish this up, we have the big picture in mind of what's going on in these epistles. So many times when we study a book, we can become so absorbed in the details of that book, and, and rightly so. We can become so absorbed in the details that we miss the bigger picture. A year and a half, two years, five years, ten years from now, if someone says, uh, oh, you studied the pastoral epistles back in 2006, 2007. What are they all about? I want you to be able to say what they're all about. Maybe not each particular, but at least like you to be able to have the big picture. Now, sometimes we, we forget to do that, and I think we make a mistake when it comes to uh, study of these particular books in the Bible. When I study a book in order to teach it, I, I make sure, actually I have the, in, in one sense, have the book finished before we ever start the first lesson. Of course, that's a little harder in the, in the longer books. But at the very least, you want a framework through which you can look at all of the, the particulars. So we want to see the generals and the particulars, and we keep moving back and forth to each one. And tonight, though, we're going to get a bigger picture, the general picture. The name pastoral epistles really didn't come into vogue until the mid-1700s, and so therefore this can be misleading. I've told you before, when I've had a rough day, a rough week, a rough month, or a rough season, I tend to go back to the pastoral epistles, and I read them for my devotional study, and have done that for many, many years. Henceforth, the pastoral epistles are, are amongst my favorite of the New Testament epistles. I feel like I, I know them well. But the reason I go back to them is because they do tell me what my responsibilities are as a pastor, and sometimes we, we get a little off kilter, we get a little off balance, and so we don't, um, we don't stay on message, we don't stay focused like we should. But while these three letters do speak to pastors and pastoral responsibilities, we, we've also learned that there is there's much more to 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus than just pastoral duties. In fact, we learn that th these letters tell us how we, corporately, all of us, ought to conduct ourselves in the household of God, which is the church. And because ecclesiology is one of those subjects today that is, that is so incredibly vital to the church and where we are as a church, um, it is something that, that I felt like was timely for us to spend some time in. And that is, what, what really is our responsibility? As a local church, what's our responsibility as Pine Valley Bible Church? Exactly what are we supposed to be doing? There seems to be, in terms of ministry philosophy, uh, there seems to be so many different philosophies of ministry that you'd almost have to have a computer to keep, keep track of all of them. And that ought not to be. There should be one philosophy of ministry that is common throughout the church, and then perhaps different ways of, of tweaking that and getting that done but we can't deviate from what the Word of God itself says ought to be the responsibility of the local church. So I'm, I'm hoping that over the last 18 months or so, you've gotten an idea of what the responsibility is to, to yourself, to me, and to us corporately as a local church. I hope you have a better idea of that. Both Timothy and Titus, they're unique people. Titus was more the drill sergeant kind of personality. Timothy, I hope I have... Uh, made my case that Timothy shouldn't be called timid Timothy, as he often is, uh, by people who haven't studied the text that well. Uh, uh, Timothy was not as strong of a personality as Titus was, 
But they were both incredible servants of the Lord, and both were very close associates of the Apostle Paul. Neither one was an apostle. Actually, we could also say probably neither one was a pastor themselves. They were somewhere in between. This was a very unique position that both of them enjoyed. They were apostolic representatives to the pastors or the elders of those particular localities. Titus and Crete, Timothy and Ephesus. So they, they enjoyed a unique position in the, in the ministry of the church and one that was not necessarily quite so easy. Uh, I can almost imagine people in Ephesus saying, well, listen, I'd just as soon wait till Paul gets back. I'd like to ask him that question. And Timothy had to have a lot of humility. So Timothy was in a tough spot, and I think he handled it well. The epistles, all these epistles, were written sometime after Paul's first imprisonment, after his release from his first imprisonment, which probably occurred in 62. He was probably imprisoned in Rome for the first time between 60 and 62, then he's released for a period of time and then is executed sometime late 67, either the wintertime of 67 or early in the spring of 68. So the, the, all three of these epistles were written between 62 and late 67. Probably, at least relatively sure, First Timothy was written first, Titus was written second, and then the last words of the Apostle Paul were the words that he wrote in Second Timothy. As to the purpose of the writing of First and Second Timothy and Titus, there was a purpose of instructing pastors, to be sure. The main pastoral duties that are described here were to maintain two things in the church, and they may surprise you if you weren't with us the whole time. The pastors had a responsibility to do to maintain two things in the church, to maintain doctrine in the church, sound doctrine, and to maintain sound discipline in the church to maintain sound doctrine in the church, and to maintain sound discipline in the church. We don't really have to go much further than that to see that the church at large today has failed greatly, at least with regard to the divine perspective or the divine prescription when it comes to a local church. I can take you to bookstores and show you, at least theological bookstores, I can show you shelf after shelf after shelf of books telling you how to do church today. Seven ways of doing this, ten ways of doing this, twelve, twelve things that every effective church does. But we don't need those quite so much if we would read what the Scriptures say that we're supposed to do with church. And if a pastor's wondering what his two primary responsibilities are, there it's relatively simple. Two Ds, doctrine and discipline. Now, we're not talking about, I mentioned the word drill sergeant a minute ago, we're not talking about a drill sergeant type of discipline, but we're talking about an orderliness within the whole scope of worship. They were to maintain sound doctrine and also to be able to defend it and to maintain sound discipline. And remember that there was a way in which that should be done. We'll talk about that. We'll remind you of that in just a few moments. But more than pastoral duties were in view. These letters were written to the entirety of the church and speak of church life. How are we to function within the scope of the local church? How am I to interact with you? How are you to interact with me? And how are you to interact with the person that's sitting next to you, besides you, in front of you, and back of you? How are we to do that? The pastoral epistles then, unlike some other books that we have studied, were primarily practical rather than theological. If we were to take the book of Romans, for example, we've got the first 11 chapters in the book of Romans were all some of the heaviest theology in the whole Word of God. So if we were to take the book of Romans, we'd say it's primary theological and secondarily practical. The last chapters 12 through 
at least through most of 15, are, are practical application. But here it's the reverse. It's not that common amongst the letters of Paul, but here it's the reverse. Primarily practical, secondarily theological. The emphasis lies not so much on the defense of doctrine or its clarification so much, but the fact that we were to defend doctrine, the, the responsibility that the church has to hold to the truth. And, and we, we have that responsibility today in a day when the truth is not valued. In fact, in some circles, if you talked about the truth, people would, if they didn't laugh openly to your face, they would at least ridicule you privately to your back. Because in, in some circles today, not the circles in which we run, and this is, this is one of the occupational hazards we have as believers, I think, and that is we rarely get outside our circles and see how the other half lives. And by the other half, I'm talking about the unbelieving world. Now, some do, because you're in college, university settings, where it's, it's, uh, the other side is being presented in a great way. Now, some do because you are in the workplace and you, and you see those kind of things. But most of us with our social life, we don't socialize with a whole lot of unbelievers, which, by the way, cuts down on our witnessing opportunities. If you had any witnessing opportunities in a long time, perhaps it's because you're only hanging around believers. And that's good to a point. That's good to a point. But the world out there ridicules the idea of absolute truth. And they say, well, that may have been okay for back then. Those, those things you read in the Bible might have been a workable ethic in the first century. Or maybe if you were to stretch it, maybe all the way until the 10th century. Maybe that was a workable ethic. But certainly not once the Renaissance took, took place. Certainly not, not once the whole Greek idea of the elevation of man came back into vogue. Certainly we need a new truth for that era, don't we? Well, no, not at all. I love the way G.K. Chesterton put it. I love the way he puts a lot of things, but particularly this kind of idea. He said, an imbecile habit has arisen in the modern controversy of saying that such and such a creed can be held in one age, but cannot be held in another. Such dogma, we are told, was credible in the 12th century, but is not credible in the 20th. You might as well say that a certain philosophy can be believed on Mondays, but cannot be believed on Tuesdays. You might as well say that a view of the cosmos that was suitable to half past three is not suitable to half past four. What a man can believe depends on his philosophy, not the clock or the century. So there is truth, and truth is, is not time-bound. What is true in the first century is true today. And this is one of the primary messages here as well. We have to be able to defend that. As to the message of the pastoral epistles, the message of the pastoral epistles really deals with two aspects of the local church, the life of the church and the leadership of the church. In these letters, Paul teaches that it's the function of the local church to proclaim God's truth to the world. And he also taught that it's the function of church leaders to expound God's truth in the church. Now, since that's the message statement for all the pastorals, and that's one of the things I want you to remember ten years from now, let me say it again so you can absorb it into your soul. He teaches in these letters, Paul teaches under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that it's the function of the local church to proclaim God's truth to the world. Did you get that? It's not the function of the local church to learn it and keep it inside these four walls. 
This is not some sort of mystery religion where we're trying to keep what we know a secret from everybody else. It's our function within the local church to learn it and then to take it outside these four walls into our community to have a positive influence on our culture. We can debate from now to the time that we're finished tonight whether that's happened. I think if you took the side that it's happened in a large way, you'd probably lose the debate. It doesn't seem as though the church, I'm talking about the church at large, is fulfilling this function. There are many churches that, that seem to have the truth down, but we're keeping it a secret. It's like we're, like Tony Evans says, we're 007 secret agent Christians, and we don't know nobody at all to know that we're believers. Or perhaps we do this. We put a fish on our car, or a sticker on our car, or wear a little lapel badge that says, I'm a believer, something like that. And then we go around acting like thoroughgoing donkeys, <laughs> if you get my drift. Well, that doesn't work either. And Paul spoke to that as well. But you see two functions. If you're in leadership in a church, your primary responsibility is to make sure that that church understands sound doctrine. Now, there are many other responsibilities. That's why I said primary. I chose those words carefully. There are other responsibilities to pastoral ministry, to be sure. But Paul says in the pastoral epistles, or what we call the pastoral epistles, it's the primary responsibility of those in leadership to make sure that those under their care are educated with regard to biblical truth. That's the primary responsibility. And then it's the primary responsibility of those who have been edified to take that truth and to spread that truth, whether it be the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ or whether it's the truth of an individual Bible doctrine. It's not our responsibility to keep it a secret. The pastorals proclaim this. It's also the responsibility of leadership if we're going to proclaim biblical truth, and that is to disclaim biblical heresy or biblical falsehood. Paul spent a a period of time in each one of the pastorals proclaiming to those who are in leadership that you have to have the courage to stand against false teaching. And here's where we need a certain amount of balance. Because sometimes we may say, um, I'll take an issue. Let's take the day that Jesus Christ was crucified. There are three different views that evangelicals hold. I don't know if you knew this or not. Some of you do, some of you don't. There, there are evangelicals that hold that Jesus was crucified on Wednesday. There are evangelicals that hold that Jesus was crucified on Thursday. And then, uh, then that Jesus was crucified on Friday. The two main views are either Friday or Wednesday. Very few hold to Thursday more, but that's a view. If someone was to come into the church and was, was wanting membership in the church, and they say, you know, Bruce, I know your view used to be Wednesday, and you're now leaning to Friday, but I lean toward Thursday. You think my responsibility was said, you're out of here then, buddy. <laughs> you are out. You're not, you're not going to join this church if you think that Christ might have been crucified on Thursday. That's not, see, that's what we do sometimes, though, isn't it? When we, when we think we're defending the truth, we camp on a minor issue. I would hope that nobody here would break fellowship with somebody over that particular issue. If you do, you need to get psychiatric help. You need something more than what I can do for you if you're going to draw the line on issues like that. However, if someone came and said, Hey, listen, Bruce, I appreciate the idea that you've got that salvation is by grace through faith apart from works, but I am thoroughly convinced that salvation is a result of our own righteousnesses the righteousness that we earn and that we can earn favor with God, then we've got to sit down and talk. And I certainly would never knowingly allow someone to come and stand before you and preach that. 
And if they ever did, you'd, you'd feel free to glance over at me because I would be having a cow in the, on the front row there. And, and it would certainly make a retraction as soon as the opportunity came. So there are issues that we need to stand firm on. There are other issues that you need to cut some people some slack on. If it's not going to matter at the end of the day, then cut them some slack. Now, if, but if it's called a doctrine, then we have to hold firm to it. That's why I'm careful personally as to what I call a doctrine. I wouldn't call it the doctrine of the fact that Jesus was crucified on Friday. That's, that's, that's a misuse of that term. It waters down the term. And then when we say we're going to stand for doctrine, it doesn't mean as much. But the point is, the leadership has to, has to proclaim the truth and has to, to make sure we protect the flock from that which is not true. I wouldn't give you a red nickel for a pastor who wouldn't protect his flock. And I know men that are that way. That they'll let, just, they'll let anybody stand in that pulpit and say anything they want to, and they'll just say, well, that's just somebody else's view. I wouldn't give you a red nickel for them because they're not doing their job, and they'll pay for that at some point in the future. But also, I'll tell you what else I wouldn't give a red nickel for. I wouldn't give a red nickel for any church that learned the Word of God and didn't go out and live it and proclaim it because we're not doing our job. So if I haven't motivated you to do that, then I haven't done my job. These are really the same points that Paul has already made in a letter that he wrote to the Ephesians earlier, some five or six years earlier, particularly in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, when he was talking about the universal church, the church with the big C. I'm talking about all believers. But in the pastoral epistles, Paul is talking about the church with the little c, a particular local church. The saints, that's you and me, that's all of us, are to do the work of the ministry. And gifted men or to equip the saints for the work. It's my responsibility to give the gospel to people. It's my responsibility to, to, to witness for Jesus Christ. But if I was the only one doing it, we'd be in big trouble. It's my responsibility to comfort other members of the flock. But once the flock gets to a certain level, everybody needs to be doing that. You know, a pastor can't be, a pastor can't fulfill all the responsibilities that he has if he makes every visit to the hospital, and I've told you this before, if you're dying in the hospital, I'm going to be there with you. If it's a non-threatening, if it's a non-life-threatening thing, I'm probably going to let your husband or your wife or one of your friends go up there with you so I can minister to the flock. Well, it's not because I don't want to be there. It's because you have to balance out your time. So in the, in the pastoral epistles, Paul applies the same truths to the local church that he had done in the letter to the Ephesians to the universal church. Now, with that in mind, shouldn't it have been a little easier for the church at Ephesus to understand what was being said in First and Second Timothy? Because they already had the letter to the, to the Ephesians. That letter went to them. It's the same church. In fact, it's, there's a possibility that at least four letters were written to the church at Ephesus, at least in a primary sense. You know what those four letters are? Ephesians, First Timothy, Second Timothy, and probably the book of Revelation, at least in terms of its first destination, was probably to the church at Ephesus. That was, that was the center of the Christian world at the time. You know, it, it wasn't Jerusalem. The, ch the church had moved away from Jerusalem. Then it went to Antioch. But after Antioch, I really think the church at Ephesus was where the center of Christianity was at that time. It's, it's a misunderstanding of church history to think it was at Rome that early. It, it, it was not. The local church, then, is an instrument that God designed to support, and here's the one thing I want to add, to display his truth. To support his truth 
and display his truth. Every believer, every individual believer, is supposed to be a light to a dark world. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, said that we're to let our light shine among men. And that's not just what you know, but how you live what you know. I want you to notice some implications with regard to the local church. First of all, we should function individually under our priesthood when we go live the truth of the Word of God. So there is an individual aspect to this, but there's also a corporate aspect to this. When people, sometimes, one time, uh, several years back, someone actually, in a rather acerbic way, described Pine Valley as the love church. Thinking that I would take that as an insult, I was complimented by that. What, what did you want us to be? We're the church that doesn't care a thing about you. <laughs> oh, that makes me feel a lot better. Now I know I've done my job. Sure, love church to be fine. Appreciate that. That's, there's no problem with that. Uh, <laughs> I can't think of a better description. Now, I wouldn't call us the uh, oasis of love. That's, <laughs> I think that's already been taken. But I'll tell you what, whoever took it got a good name right up front. Whether they ever live up to it or not, they, 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 they copyrighted a good one. That was a, that was a good thing. We need to do that individually, and we need to do it corporately. Now, how do you do it corporately? You don't, you, don't, you don't get together and have a congregational meeting and say, you know what, I think when we go out into the world, we need to make sure we're loving as a body. The way you do it corporately is you do it individually. The way you do it corporately is you do it individually. Sometimes, sometimes it makes me happy. Sometimes, sometimes little spiders crawl up my back when somebody comes and says, I met somebody from your church the other day. <laughs> it's just like that. I, I met somebody that knew you when you were in high school. You know, you don't know. What are they fixing to say? <laughs> I've changed since then. But, um, but uh, most of you do a good job. Every now and then, Every now and then there's, there's somebody I have to apologize for, but, but uh, not, not too often. The church must be careful to present an unchanging message to the world. This does not mean we can't change our method of presentation. You know, the church back in, in medieval times and even in pre-Renaissance times have you ever noticed all the artwork? that You, you may go into a, an old church and you'll see artwork all along the walls. In, in fact, you go into some churches in, in northern Italy and in Germany and, and the artwork is, is part of the wall. I forget what they call is that a fresco? Is that what they call that? Fresco? Some, but where it's actually part of the wall. If you look closely, it's not just decorations. Back then, the method of presenting biblical stories, since most people were illiterate, was to look at the walls. And when a person would come in, they'd see the announcement of the, the virgin birth to Mary, and then they'd see the baptism of Jesus, and then they'd see the Sermon on the Mount, and they'd come around. And it'll go all the way around and all the way back to the back, perhaps even over the back door. But back toward the back, you'd have the centerpiece would be the, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension of Christ, and then maybe even the eternal judgment. So if you looked around, they, they presented the timeless truth of the Word of God in pictures that way, because most of their congregation was illiterate. And most of the congregation, certainly, even if they weren't illiterate, they didn't speak or they didn't read Latin, and that was per perhaps your only shot to read the Word. 
And, and the priests, those who were doing the teaching back then, would even, would even use those pictures when, it, when they did preach the word to demonstrate this is what's going on in that particular uh, piece of art. Well, today we present, hopefully, the same message. Now, that's, that's debatable in some circles. But we're presenting the message of the word of God, but we're not just putting up pictures. We're doing it, hopefully, in a little bit more depth because you can read. And, and I can read, and the scripture is open to all of us. So we have the, a text in front of us. So we go verse by verse by verse. It would have been more difficult back then. I'm sure some did it. We know some did, but it wasn't done by and large. So we have a responsibility to present an unchanging gospel. And by gospel, I don't just mean believe on the Lord Jesus Christ now. So we say by gospel, I'm using that in a broader sense here of the entirety of God's divine self-disclosure. That's unchanging. Part of the problem with, with the local church and and I, and I hate to keep bringing up problems, but this is the reality of it. Part of the problem worldwide, not just in the United States, but worldwide, is that some people think we've got to change the message because the message has become outdated. No, it hasn't. Maybe we need to change our methods, to be sure. If you're going to reach one audience, maybe you need to present it in a, in a way that you would present it. Maybe you do it differently to somebody else. And I've learned that, too. When I, when I go to different cultures, for example, I don't use humor. Humor doesn't translate very well. Tried it before. You say something to a translator, and I think it's just funny as all get out, and then they, they're just kind of looking like, did, did I miss something there? <laughs> and uh, they did. They, they missed the irony of the situation. So you may present it a little differently. You may wear something different when you're communicating. When I'm in Africa, I was told before I ever went up there that you, no matter what the temperature is, you're to wear a coat and tie, no matter what the circumstance, because every single person that came, whether they came by train or by foot or walking dusty roads, would have their very best on to sit and listen to you, the, the pastors would. And sure enough, every single one of them had their coat and their tie, and some of it looked like that the Salvation Army, I'm not kidding, some of it looked like the Salvation Army wouldn't take it if they had offered it to them. But that was the best they had. So they expected you to have the best you had on, or at least... At least something that was approaching that. In, in India as well, it was 108 degrees. But I preached with a, a coat and tie on the entire time I was speaking. As soon as I got set down from the platform, then I took my coat and tie off, but not when I was speaking, because that was, that was what they expected in their culture. So it may even go down to the dress, but the message stayed the same. The message that was preached in Africa, same message that we preached in India. Because it's the same God, it's the same Holy Spirit that's working on that soul. That's that same human being who was created in the image of God, and has value because he was. The second message, apart from the fact that the local church is to defend sound doctrine and to then to present sound doctrine to the world, the second issue that Paul brings up in the pastoral epistles is that of the church's application of that doctrine within the walls, and that's called worship. Worship is the response to revelation. When you, once you learn something about God, there should be a response to that learning. Again, this is one of those things that we misunderstand too much today. Worship is not simply singing. It includes singing, to be sure. But it's not simply singing. Worship is everything that goes on inside these walls. It's everything that goes on once you get out of your car and start walking in here. That's why it makes no sense at all to fuss at somebody in the parking lot and then to come in here and to think that you're worshiping that day. No, you, you lost your fellowship out in the parking lot. You need to make it right with whoever it was you fussed at before you sit down. Otherwise, you're worse. you didn't worship that day. You blew it with, a, with not loving your neighbor or loving your fellow believer before you ever got in here. But worshiping according to the Scriptures includes praying. 
We already done that tonight. Wasn't it neat to hear that Sandra Hagri has gotten a lung? How many years has that been on the prayer list? A bunch. I mean, I can't remember when that first went on the prayer list, but it's been a while. And I praise God, but that's part of worship. Part of worship is when we give of our resources. Part of worship is when the scriptures were. We're worshiping now by, by the exposition of the word. Now, we might not do every aspect of worship in every service. We don't have a communion service every time that we meet. We don't have a water baptism every time that we meet. We, we typically do have some preaching of the Word of God, but, but certain times, maybe once or twice a year, we'll meet for a potluck dinner, and that can still qualify as worship. We're all together as a group. We're praying. We're fellowshipping around our, our common love for Jesus Christ. So Paul says that, that just like Dr. Dwight Pentecost did, revelation is a response, or worship is a response to revelation. When you learn something, you should respond, and that response is worship. So no, let's don't let people redefine terms away from the biblical model, and only make it a certain aspect. It's, it's everything. Now, there's some people that think that after the music service is finished, worship is stopped. And there's other people that think and that as, as soon as the, worship, the music is finished, worship has begun. And neither one of those are true. Worship's, everything happens from the time you get out of your car and start talking to people on the way in. I know that makes it a little harder for some of you, but uh, that's the truth. So our worship must be unceasing. You know, uh, Paul Shockley in one of his recent messages on Revelation uh, mentioned that worship will go on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Now, if that bothers you, and you be honest, not with me, but with yourself, I know some of you thought, well, I thought we were going to get to go do some fishing and some hiking, and, <laughs> and I thought there was going to be a whole lot of Starbucks and coffee and, and all that kind of stuff. I didn't know we were just going to be attending church the entire time. <laughs> You don't understand worship. That's what you think. Because everything you do in heaven will be worship. When you get to walk along those heavenly Alps or Rocky Mountains or whatever it may be, that's going to be worshiping in heaven. So when we talk about one continual worship service, even when you've got your, your pitching wedge out on number nine in, in the Jerusalem's golf course, if there is such a thing, <laughs> that'll be worship too. Where it is not necessarily, it can be, but not necessarily now, I know some people say, well, I'm worshiping out on the golf course on Sunday morning. That's probably not the best place to be worshiping on Sunday morning. Monday, perhaps, but not Sunday. <laughs> one of the most important things that the pastoral epistles bring out, one of the very most important things, is that it matters how you present the truth. And one's personal example is every bit as important as a persuasive explanation or persuasive argument. The local church must persevere in ministry without failing. And if we're to do that, we need leaders and members who incarnate the truth and consistently and efficiently minister to other people. The church leadership ministering to those under their care, those who are Within a local church, ministering to those outside the local church. It matters how you do it. Uh, to paraphrase Ravi Zacharias, he said, Truth presented without the undergirding of love makes that truth repulsive and the one who is presenting that truth repugnant. If you present the truth in anger, you have not presented the truth according to the Apostle Paul. We have a responsibility to do it in love. 
Now, if you're thinking that's hard to do, I agree with you. Paul never said it's going to be easy, neither did Jesus Christ. Because when you present the truth, not necessarily everybody wants to hear it. And sometimes people are going to come back at you. Haven't you ever done that with a family member or a friend? Haven't you ever sat down with them and said, hey, listen, I love you. That's why I want to tell you this. You're messing up. Or you need to study harder. Or or whatever it may be. Typically, people don't just say, you know what, Dad? Thank you so much for telling me that. I've been thinking I need to change. And if you do, they're probably putting you on. But the the fact of the matter is, when we present the truth, somebody's not going to necessarily like it. And the temptation is to put our shoulder to the wind, to grit our teeth, and say, this is the truth, whether you like it or not. And that's not presenting the truth in love. So that's the third thing the church must do. We, we must remember that personal example is every bit as important as persuasive ex- explanation. We saw twice in the pastoral epistles, in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, that there were character qualifications for those who would exercise leadership in the local church. Where I've taught this in various cultures and in, in various countries, this is always one of the most difficult things for people to buy, that there are character qualifications, because we have become so pragmatic across the world. And the pragmatism goes like this. But she's a great Bible teacher. She's a better Bible teacher than any man I know. Well, I don't care. Because Paul told us in the pastoral epistles that a woman's not to teach or exercise authority over man in a pastoral setting. Now, I don't care if you like that or not. And I know, especially when I teach that in settings outside of our own local church, I'm preaching to the choir now. Most of all of you are either in agreement with that or you wouldn't ever say you're not. <laughs> Thankfully. But in other settings, they're certainly not. And, and people are ready to throw books and Cokes and whatever else they have at you. And, and, and the discussion always goes like this. But she's better. She's better than you are. I don't care. Maybe she is. But that's not the point. Not in a local church setting. So we learn that. We also learn, though, that, that women who are a little further down life's road, either with age or Christian maturity, have a responsibility to work with other women and to teach them. But those who would occupy the office of elder, and we saw during this study that the office of elder, bishop, and pastor are all the same office. Those, th- those terms are used interchangeably in the pastorals, and you compare it with 1 Peter 5. There, there are certain character requirements that are mentioned there. And that's not perfection, thank goodness, or nobody would be able to be a pastor. But there are certain character requirements, and we went through each of those. And those character requirements must be a present reality, not a future ideal. But personal example is every bit as important as persuasive explanation. I want to note some implications of that. First, a church leader must be absolutely loyal to the truth. That's why when Paul gets close to the end of his exhortations to Timothy, he sums up his responsibility, preach the word. Music to my ears. Preach the word. It's a command, by the way. It's, it's not a suggested ministry philosophy. That's a command. Second, one who's in leadership... And by the way, this applies to all of us, but the leaders got picked on here just a little bit. Uh, His behavior toward others must be consistent. There must be a deep commitment to fulfilling his purpose of being a good example, as well as the purpose of communicating verbally. It's one thing to communicate verbally. It's another to do so in love and consistently in love. Now, not 
perfectly in love. If it had to be done perfectly in love, you can count me out. I mean, there's failures that happen more than I would like for them to happen. And unfortunately, when there's been failures, those who, who have been recipients of that have, have loved me and forgiven me. And I appreciate that. I really do. All joking aside. But there should be consistency in behavior. And not like a church up in Tyler, where not, not too long ago you had, I think, two deacons and pastor meeting on the front porch. And we're having a little discussion about things going on in the church. I think it was the pastor ended up knocking both the deacons out. You know, that the church is, is no more. Wonder why? You know, they're, they're they're completely split. There's no more church there at all, and uh, it's because you can't do that. That's one of those character requirements that we went over. I'm not going to go over them all again now because we're running out of time, and I want to summarize this. So first, uh, a leader in the church, Paul says, must be loyal to the word. Second, they must be consistent love exercised toward one another. And third, there must be perseverance, because as you might can expect, that'll be challenged. And there must be perseverance. The, the pastor must continue to let God's revelation sit in judgment on his life. No offense at all, seriously. But if I allowed each individual member of the congregation to evaluate the ministry, I would, I would not make it a week because there's too many divergent views. What I've got to do is look and see, did what I say that week line up with the Word of God as best as I understand it right now? And then if it did, I'm okay. Sometimes I go back and I say, doggone it, I, I, I completely missed that. And then try to, and, I, and I'm hopefully to be upfront with you when I do, and I come back and I, and I correct it the next week. But you have to persevere, and you have to let God's truth sit in judgment on your life, not necessarily other people. Now, sometimes God can use other people as part of that judgment, and you need to be open and listen to people. But at the end of the day, you have to see, is what, is what they said consistent with what the Bible said? Did they take the Bible and say, hey, listen, Bruce, this is where I think that, that you're messing up. And you look down and say, well, you know what? I think you're right. And you have to allow the Word of God to be the final arbiter. You must continue to be responsive to the truth. Any pastor that hadn't grown in 10 or 12 years is a pastor that I wouldn't want to sit under. You need to be responsive to the truth. And you must behave in harmony with the truth. So by way of application in our closing moments, let me point out three things that the church needs to watch out for and then three things that a church leader should be aware of, they are very, very similar. The local church should beware of false doctrine. And by that, again, I mean any doctrine that deviates from the essential teaching of the faith. If, if we invite false doctrine to the church, it inevitably weakens our ministry to the world in spite of what a hundred books may tell you. There, you, may, you may come up with a hundred books that tell you, if you'll compromise your doctrinal position, you'll have more people in your church. Well, maybe you will, but you'll weaken your position before the world. We must guard the doctrine of our church. In our rush to be relevant to our culture, we must remember that it's the timeless truth of the Word of God that gives us our relevance in the first place, not entertainment and not the assimilation of the church into the culture. Not the assimilation of the church into the culture. Jesus ministered to prostitutes, but he never became a prostitute to minister to prostitutes. We need to show the culture a better way. And it's the way that Jesus Christ showed. We need to be sensitive that we, that we minister to the culture. We don't want to divorce ourselves from the culture. I hope you know who the President of the United States is and who the Vice President is. And the fact that the Attorney General just resigned this week. As a good Christian, you ought to know those things. 
but we don't have to pierce everything that's visible in order to give the gospel to people. You don't have to do that. It's the timeless message of the Word of God that's powerful, not a body piercing or a tattoo. No offense to those who have body piercings and tattoos. But that's not going to make, that's not going to give you any more of a hearing at the end of the day. It's the presentation of the truth of the Word of God in love that'll give you the hearing. In love. I think that's the biggest mistake of our church today. Not our church specifically, but the church, I'm talking about the church, universal church. That's the biggest mistake that we've made. We've accommodated ourselves to the culture. We've allowed the culture to come in here and assimilate with us rather than us going out there and giving people a better way of doing things. The second thing that we need to remember, second biggest thing, and I kind of combined the first two, beware of false doctrine and hold to, to sound doctrine. So the third thing really would be to beware of a failure in prayer. Prayer is not the easiest thing in the world to do because you've got to set aside time to do it, both as a church and individually. But if a church forgets to pray or makes prayer a secondary exercise, our, our ministry to the world is going to be gone. Chuck Swindoll said one time in a, at a chapel service at Dallas Seminary, I wonder what it would be like at Dallas Seminary if on a late Sunday night, early Monday morning, that the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church. He said, you know what I fear? He said, I fear that when we showed up on Tuesday morning, in their case, things would go along just right along as normal because we're such a well-oiled machine. He said, I fear that. He said, what I prefer to see happen, if the Holy Spirit happened to be removed, of course, it's theoretical because we'd be going to the rapture and all that. I know, but if the Spirit was removed, I would hope, he, he said, I hope we would fall apart. And I would say that the same thing for Pine Valley Bible Church. I would hope if the Spirit wasn't here, then we wouldn't know what to do. Again, that's theoretical because if the Spirit wasn't here, we'd be raptured in church with the Lord. But I saw his point. We need to pray. If we don't pray, it's going to hinder our own growth and our own outreach to the world. Now, the same dangers, the same things could be said for the church leader. I'll go over them quickly. A church leader should not neglect his doctrine, his duty, or his diligence in the presentation of that doctrine in a loving manner. If we know and respond to God's truth, we will be free from those influences that will hinder us in our ministry. So in conclusion, if we are to fulfill our purpose as a local church, I'm talking about here at Pine Valley, let's get personal now. This is not theoretical, this is practical. If we're to fulfill our purpose as a local church, we must stand firm in the truth in a culture that by and large does not believe that there are absolute truths. The pastoral epistles also emphasize that this must be done in love. It matters what you believe. It matters what you believe. But it also matters how you express what you believe to this postmodern culture in which we find ourselves. As I see it, there are really only three options open to us at Pine Valley, both individually and corporately. The first is we can hold to and we can proclaim sound doctrine with the spirit of anger. The second option is that we can run from the task and we can fail to either hold to or to proclaim sound doctrine altogether. And I would reject those first two. I said they were options, but they're not an option for success. Those are options that result in failure in the spiritual life. And since we only go around once, 
I don't want to see any of us fail. It's the third option that we should hold to. We can hold a sound doctrine, and we can proclaim it in love, as Paul has commanded. And as we do so, we present Christ as beautiful and our Lord and Savior as he really is. Perhaps the most important line in all the pastorals is when Paul says that the goal of our instruction is love. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we've had over these 18 months to study these pastoral epistles, First, Second Timothy and Titus. I pray now that you'll help us as we move on to another subject in the weeks to come. I pray that you will help us to keep this in mind every time we uh, assemble ourselves together. Every time that we go speak your truth to someone outside of our church. Father, help us to proclaim this incredible divine self-revelation that you've given us in the spirit of love in the manner in which you have commanded us to proclaim it. And we'll ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.